0: hi this is scott thompson welcome to the scott thompson show podcast thanks for listening tell your friends feel free to subscribe coming up on today's show the prime minister and the premier telling everyone to hunker down as new restrictions are on the way it looks like the president has lost georgia to joe biden does this mean he concedes the election and tom wilson is with us to talk about his art his music, and his identity. A fascinating discussion. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The weekend is finally here. What should I do? I'm going to wash my hands, put on my fresh mask, and keep two meters away from everyone. Try to top that! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson!
0: It's 1245. It's 900 ZHML. I'm Alan Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. We have just listened to, uh, the prime minister and, uh, a news conference out in front of Rideau Cottage, the black door, which we remember very much was, uh, where we left off last spring and, 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 and frighteningly enough taking us back there. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank
2: you, Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: I don't know how, uh, if you saw any of the uh, Prime Minister's press conference at all, but uh, certainly painting a grim picture and uh, very significant uh, symbolic with him being out in front of uh, the black door of Rideau Cottage again, taking us back to uh, obviously the spring and, and late winter. Your thoughts on all of this?
2: Well, I think it brings us back to the first wave and the first episode of the pandemic where it's a clear symbolism of the seriousness and the severity of the cases now. I think it's done on purpose from a political standpoint to signify or signal to the country that we're back to where we thought we won't have to be, which is that escalating numbers of COVID-19 cases and the spike in the numbers are, are, are massive and they're worrisome for people who are involved in the frontline response to COVID-19. I think the concern right now is about the caseloads going up and hospitals getting overwhelmed and more and more of our loved ones getting sick.
0: And, and you know I think that's what's what people are finally understanding uh here with this second wave is you know a lot of people are thinking well I, you know I'm not getting sick I'm not this I'm not that but what they're not understanding or forgetting although the majority of people who get this will survive and lead a normal life there's a segment of the population that it that won't that it will take that it will take out and 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 those people will fill up ICU units those people will will fill up hospitals and then taxing the system so when there's a car crash, when there's a heart attack, when there's cancer surgery that's needed, it there's a rippling effect and that's how it harms the rest of society. Do you think we're finally getting that message?
2: Well, I hope so. I think you just very eloquently uh, conveyed that. So I really appreciate you saying that, Scott. I think this is the point that we're trying to say is that we do know that our ICU units are at full capacity right now. Uh, and that's very concerning. I mean, not across the country, but in some hospitals that are getting to full capacity. And the issue there is that you might not need ICU visit uh, or uh, stay, but if next time you come in for any issue you have at the emergency room department, you might not have the adequate care that you need because our system is being overwhelmed. So there is a concern for all of us or a vested incentive for all of us to actually listen to the advice of staying at home as much as possible and and recalling back some of the interventions uh, and the measures we have in place during the first wave. I mean, a lot of those things are not new to us anymore. I think all of us are familiar with what the interventions are, what the extent of what we have to do. And I, and I hope that this is today Prime Minister standing in front of the House and of the doors that are very symbolic of the first wave it's just an indication of the seriousness of the an issue, and we look forward to hear what the Ford government will have to say in a few hours today, because we suspect that you know major lockdowns are are happening, and even now.
0: Uh, do you think that, um, uh, part of this is the fact that people are, are get, uh, feeling optimistic in a sense about the vaccine that, you know, we're almost at the end of this and are letting down the guard, uh, you know, cause obviously the messaging is out there. We've been, you know, we've, we've been through this for months now. Uh, but do you honestly think that it's just people, they're just exhausted. They've got enough and they've had enough and and they're just being more lax about all of this.
2: I mean, absolutely. I think people have had enough. It there is COVID 19 fatigue. We're tired of living in this pseudo war like setting where, you know, we're being told what we can do and not do. Uh, that's difficult for anybody to handle. I mean, we already know that suicide rates are double than they ever have. We already know that the mental health impact this has had on everybody is insane. But the reality is, cop, you have to come to a decision on whether population health is, a, is the most important thing you want to think about considering when making a decision. And the reality is nothing in the world, no money, nothing in the world will ever come in the place of a loved one dying or somebody you know getting really sick and the pandemic getting worse over time. So we have to prioritize that. Population health should be the first thing uh, on everybody's mind. And when you're considering whether to get in a large gathering, attend a party or, uh, or exercise in behavior that can jeopardize population health, just think about everybody's loved ones who, you know, we can recall stories of people not able to visit individuals at hospitals that were dying, not because of COVID-19, but for any other illness. But because of COVID-19, you're not allowed to visit them. So what I'm trying to make here, the point is that the repercussions of this escalating numbers can have tremendous impact on everybody's lives. And so it's important that we all keep in mind that we're tr- this is a, a measure to protect population health.
0: And, as you mentioned, the Premier uh, going to speak this afternoon at three thirty this afternoon. We will uh, cover that press conference live. Um, can we can we surgically do this? Uh, we're presuming that the the Premier is going to announce more restrictions, certainly in the hot spots, which uh, you know obviously appear from Hamilton all the way around to uh, uh, the other end of Toronto. Can we surgically do this through these hot spots, or do you think this is going to require a blanket sort of, uh, situation, because even in Hamilton, some people are complaining. My goodness, you know, we're not Peel. Why, why are we getting grouped into this this red zone? So, what are your thoughts on on what we need to do moving forward?
2: Well, my thoughts are based on evidence, and the evidence tells us that this sectional or silo structure policies, where Hamilton is different than Toronto or, or whatever the case is, don't actually work when you have a mobile country. The beauty of living in Canada is that we don't have borders across our cities and our provinces. You are free to travel wherever you would like within our country. Uh, and by with that freedom comes an issue with come, when it comes to controlling a pandemic like COVID-19. How do you stop if Scott right now was to get in his car and come to visit me where I reside in downtown Toronto, is anybody going to stop you or anybody going to check whether you have COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Or when you leave downtown core Toronto, are you going to be checked whether you're bringing COVID-19 into your own home community? So the point I'm trying to make here is that this, you know, COVID-19 cares very little about the fact that one spot of the country is not a hot spot and the other one is. It's just trying to find a human host. And as long as we provide it with a human host, it will it will find a way to get through any community, regardless of where it is. We do need a national strategy. We do need a multi-pronged public health strategy that includes national testing plan. And we've said this over and over again. We need widespread frequent testing. And one way to do that is through this antigen rapid test where every household in Canada should be getting those tests, should be getting checked. So next time Scott wants to get in his car and come to visit me, downtown Toronto. He can get checked on his own home if he has COVID-19. And if he's negative, he feels comfortable that he can come down and vice versa.
0: Do we have access to that sort of fast testing yet? I mean, we certainly hear lots of people talking about it, but we don't seem to be there yet.
2: We have 3.8 million tests right now in Canada that the Canadian government was able to secure. So we do have access to them. Canada has been very, you know, sort of uh, bold in trying to secure them. The issue still remains on jurisdictional duties and how we're going to be able to distribute them. Right now, currently, the government of Canada has announced that Those 3.8 million rapid antigen tests are being deployed for rural settings, so areas in the country where don't have access to assessment centres. But ideally, what we really want is those rapid antigen tests to be deployed across the country to every household. It's going to take some time because Health Canada is still trying to look at the, the, the safety and effectiveness of them, although evidence has actually clearly shown that they are very, very effective and can show positive tests immediately or within a very short time span.
0: All right, Ahmad, I know we've asked this question of you probably every single appearance since this all started, and it becomes redundant, but what advice do you have for those heading into the weekend? And it obviously looks like we're going to be battening down the hatches again.
2: I hope that the public knows that we're in it together. I mean, that message stays clear to me throughout this pandemic. We're all trying to figure this out. Nobody has the perfect answer. Uh, Really, nobody has the most perfect answer. It's a It's something we've never dealt with before. We're all just trying to figure out how to adapt in real time and using the best available evidence to guide our intervention. So I ask everybody to really, you know, trust your instincts, rely on the science, and look for evidence where you can to support your sort of thinking moving forward.
0: Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend as best we all can. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
3: The last time Kaylee McEnany briefed the press was on October 1st. Since then, countless Americans have died from the coronavirus and an election took place, both of which have become points of contention with the American public as the president ignores one to focus on the other. Friday's briefing comes one day after a bizarre news conference from the Trump campaign legal team that trafficked conspiracies to try and better explain Trump's loss. Meanwhile, in Georgia, the state is set to certify its election Election results on Friday, formally giving Joe Biden 16 electoral votes. While in Michigan, the president is fighting his loss, calling state GOP legislators to the White House, seen as an attempt to overthrow the state's vote and possibly have electors replaced with ones more sympathetic to him. Reggie Ciccini, Global News, Washington.
0: As Reggie said, uh, Georgia has, in fact, uh, given the win to Joe Biden uh, after a recount was done there. And now, uh, as also, as Reggie mentioned, uh, the president is focusing on Michigan and calling Republican or GOP uh, uh, Mich- from Michigan, Republicans from Michigan to the White House in order to explain, uh, I guess, what is going on there. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Thank you, Michael, for taking the time. Hope you're doing well.
3: Thank you, Scott. Yep, doing well. Hope you and your family are, too.
0: Uh, Before we get to the United States, just your thoughts on the Prime Minister once again uh, coming out from behind the black door at Rideau College, uh, the symbolism behind that taking us back to the spring and uh, late winter.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously he's trying to portray that we are back in, in similar times, although obviously he directly stated that the second wave of the coronavirus, at least based on the models that we currently see, will ultimately be worse than the first wave. From a historical perspective, that's not surprising, as I've mentioned on your show and others, and many others have too. Historically, if you look at pandemics, the second wave and third wave in some instances tends to be worse than the first wave. That just seems to be the way it operates. No matter what measures you take, no matter how how hard you try to be safe, physically distance, wash your hands, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, unfortunately, the virus is, is you know it's pervasive and for that reason it just gets through no matter what you do it's also a lot worse historically in cold weather with the one exception being the spanish flu from 1918 and 1920. most in generally speaking most pandemics or most coronaviruses or coronavirus like symptoms or just viruses if you wish it tends to be worse in the winter time
2: so all right
3: everything he did there is unsurprising but obviously he's just setting it up that he's going to basically repeat what he did right when, you know, when all this started back in March.
0: Uh, Last question on the prime minister, then we'll move on. Um, Yesterday uh, announcing a climate change policy, uh, which I guess didn't make too much attention, uh, get too much attention, so simply because we're in the midst of a pandemic. When asked okay. about it today, when asked about it today during his news conference, he didn't really talk much, too much about it, and said how his focus instead said how his focus was on the pandemic. Yet announced this yesterday. Uh, reasoning behind that timing, good, bad?
3: Because he always focuses on pet issues. That's not surprising. That's the way this prime minister has operated from day one. He has his own little issues in mind about. Uh, climate change, guns, various other things. And as he's seen, even in 2020, as we're dealing with COVID-19, he still brings them out from time to time. Not surprising. So basically for him, he just wanted to get it out there, and now he's obviously trying to, I wouldn't necessarily run away from it, but hop away from it, so to speak, to so just sort of let it sit out there, let it, you know, let it fester, and then he'll worry about it later. He got. It, he did exactly what he wanted to do. So probably for him, mission is accomplished because – He gets to talk about one of the issues that some of his supporters are big on. But quite frankly, if you look at polling data, and there's been some recent ones in the last little bit, Scott, most Canadians aren't paying that much attention to climate change and the environment for the obvious reason that we should be solely focused on the pandemic, or if not solely, mostly focused on it, with other issues obviously following along. That's the way it should be done. So he got what he wanted. He got his attention for it. But in the end, most Canadians aren't going to really pay that much attention because most Canadians right now at this present time don't care that much about the issue.
4: Okay,
0: let's head down to Georgia. Uh, after the recount, they have called it in Biden's favor. Your thoughts on all of this?
3: Yes, they basically confirmed it. I am looking for the exact number. I can't find it. But basically, the state was decided by just a little over 12,000 votes, which in a state where more than 5 million people voted, it's, you know, it's only about 0.1% differential, which is very, very small. No, it's not the smallest we've ever seen. Obviously, 20 years ago, an entire case went to the Supreme Court of the United States over roughly about 455 votes. That was in Florida. And that's a bigger state overall than Georgia. So you see these things from time to time. But basically, what has happened is Georgia has now officially certified their state in favor of joe biden so unless there is a major case brought forward into let's say again the supreme court of the united states or something of that nature it's right now in his tally which means that biden has uh 306 votes overall in the electoral college you know excluding the possibility of some faithless electors and whatnot which basically means he has roughly about the same tally that donald trump did four years ago which is kind of interesting uh, but again, was it expected? Yes. I mean, did most people think that he, it was going to be overturned with such a wide margin? No. But again, that's basically what the Trump team is trying to do. They're either trying to cast some dispersion, cast some doubt, or challenge it in hopes that they can catch something somewhere, as they're doing with Wisconsin now, they're going to be trying to get a recount there.
0: Uh, so, uh, what happens now? I mean, uh, Georgia was obviously a, a key point. Now, uh, the president is focusing back on Michigan, wants uh, members of the GOP to meet at the White House. At what time do you let this go?
3: Michigan is one state. Washington is another. Pennsylvania is certainly a possibility. And as I've been saying all along, and others are saying it too, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, is he is still yet to... Uh, approach the bench for a hearing, and my guess is that he will, at least on one occasion, if not twice. So this is a long way from ending. As as much as people keep saying that it's ended, the, the election is done, we've got to start the transition process, under normal circumstances, yes, that's typically how it operates. But right now, because of all the various challenges, which are either legitimate or just a stall tactic, depending on which side you believe, there's not really much you can do right now. So It's not over. The Trump side does not have to meet with the Biden side for the transition process until everything is done. The 20th Amendment, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution, directly states that the Electoral College and the certification of all the U.S. states cannot be performed until all these matters are basically closed. It has to be done cleanly. And as of right now, it's not clean. There's still matters that are up in the air. The rationale behind it is one thing. The strategy is another, but it's nowhere near done, as much as people would like it to be.
0: Um, uh, As far as, uh, well, it's not done uh, formatically and and as far as following uh, all the rules and regulations, but as far as who's going to be a winner or loser, that's pretty much been decided. No? No. No. I mean,
3: I mean, I know. I know
0: legally it hasn't, Michael. It but has- the way things are, you know what, I know. Okay, we'll, le- we'll leave. We'll leave that. Then I'm not going to argue about that.
3: This I be know. Because matters up in the air, and you've got to follow the procedures. Even I, and I'm
0: not, not. I'm not denying that, prepared. but. It- I'm not denying that, but, but, but uh, more reputable people than you and I have called this already. That's, I guess that's what I'm basing my decision on. So how does this change the race for the Senate in Georgia with this now being declared in, um, in, in Biden's favor?
3: Well, um, basically right now, as I sort of said, and I'm just being a broken record, it's, it's sort of all up in the air right now. Obviously, the Biden team will accept victory in Georgia and they're pushing forward. In fact, earlier today, Joe Biden announced more people who are going to be serving in his White House staff. So he's moving along the way he should be moving along. He's presuming himself to be the presumptive president-elect or the, the next person to be the occupant of the White House. So he's moving forward in his direction, while counter, you know, you counter it with the fact that Donald Trump and his legal team are continuing to fight it in various states. And basically, you have two different results going on at the same time. It's not completely unheard of, but it's unusual the way it's being done right now. But right. So basically, Georgia will just be used as an emphatic point for the Biden team. Trump's side is going to obviously keep claiming that the whole thing, you know, that they were screwed out of the whole thing, that the whole thing was rigged, etc. But again, I think that the battle is really going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court if they're willing to hear it.
0: So, what about uh, and at what point do, do do the does the Republican Party move on? Is this all about those two Senate seats come January? Why this is continuing uh, to to be drawn out? Uh, how is this about playing for those two Senate seats in January? And the fact that the state has gone to Biden does that affect those?
3: I think again, I, I think that you have to look at the overall picture. Yes, obviously, the two Senate seats are the to um, races in Georgia still outstanding are extremely important because the Republicans want to hold to the U.S. Senate. It, it may end up being the only level of government they actually obtain after all is said and done by early next year. So for that reason, they're going to put everything into it to ensure that their two candidates, uh, Mr. Perdue and Ms. Lawler, get through. And if they get them, then at least if nothing else, they can push back against a biden presidency what is that's what it ultimately becomes but in other cases to be fair you know quite frankly um they are also supportive you know they're supportive of the white house as well because even if they don't necessarily like the president all that much again it's a republican in the white house they're trying to basically either just stay out of the conversation or be somewhat supportive if you notice very very few republicans are coming out strongly in favor of Mr. Trump. There are some, of course, but the vast majority of them are sort of playing along the game and just letting it sort of sort itself out because in the end, ultimately, they can kind of sense where it's going and the chances of Mr. Trump winning, You know, I've said this to you before, but I'll say again, are very slim, not completely impossible, but very slim. So they have to prepare in their own right too, but they also have to be party loyal to loyalists and they have to support they have to support the president for right now. It's interesting, the point you made. I don't want to keep reflecting on it, where you said that, I, and I, pardon me if I'm paraphrasing a little bit, reputable people or more reputable than us have actually already declared the election <laughs> over. I, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but some of the reputable people I may be thinking of, and you know, you'd have to name them all for me, uh, may not be terribly reputable to me, quite frankly, and quite a lot of no. others as well. Fair
0: enough, Michael.
3: And there are also people associated with the Lincoln Project and other groups that are seen as reputable, quote-unquote. And I think a lot of Republicans today don't see them that way and see them actually as traitorous in the way that they handle things, even if they were doing it from a purely personal point of view, which they had every right to do in a democracy. So I think we have to be careful with the language that we use of who is saying what. I also don't agree as well that people who are coming out and saying that that Donald Trump has won the election— some of which, by the way, are reputable, Scott. They're wrong, too. So I think that everyone who's making these big proclamations should just take it easy and relax. Everything will sort itself out because the U.S., while imperfect, is still the greatest democracy on Earth. They will figure this out. They will get everything in order. If the U.S. Supreme Court hears it, a decision will be rendered. And if they don't, that will end the issue. And then Donald Trump has to stop stalling. He'll have to then figure out... How to coordinate everything, get the transition team in order, and move forward. That's the way I look at it, anyway.
0: Are you worried, Michael, about lost faith in institutions, or do you think this just strengthens them? Uh, because again, you know, a lot of Trump's rhetoric's been questioning everything, which I guess we should all do. We should healthy debate is needed, um, but but certainly, you know, uh, uh, certainly not putting trust in a lot of the institutions, including uh, you know the election itself. Are you worried that? that that is is going to erode democracy in some way.
3: You know, I I know people are obviously concerned about that, and I've seen some op-eds in various newspapers, Uh, Washington Post and New York Times certainly, and I've seen in some smaller ones as well, including a couple of conservative-leaning ones, kind of questioning the fact that basically the, the whole nature of American democracy is being disrupted very badly by this and may be permanently destroyed as well again i think these are very grandiose speculations at this point it's not that people who have been doing this longer than me or longer than you and others are not thinking along this level it's really just a question of is it not defeatism at that point should we not at least allow the system to play itself out and recognize that the president no matter which president it is is obviously a very important person for either a four- or eight-year span, which has been the, you know, the normal tenure because of the pre- limitation for two presidential terms, which has been in place now for decades, the person is certainly important, but the office itself or the nature of democracy is much older, much stronger, historically powerful, and gets past a lot of these controversies. Again, it sort of leads me to believe, you know, when people are saying mm. that Donald Trump, quote-unquote, has ruined the Republican Party. Well, the Republican Party is much older than Donald Trump, and it has somehow survived a whole series of good and bad presidential candidates. And guess what? They'll survive Trumpism as well. There will be people who follow Donald Trump, and they'll stay there for a while, and they'll play roles, but there are lots of other Republicans as well. Much the same way people were looking for the next Ronald Reagan when he left office. There never was going to be anyone to replace Ronald Reagan because he was a unique entity. Much like, much like the Bush families, are, it was a unique entity. Much like Trump is a unique entity. Everyone is different that way. So, again, I look at a lot of these things that people just worried and fearful and concerned, and it also fits under the whole nature of derangement syndrome, which we've seen for people like Donald Trump or even my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper. We've seen this used a lot. Again, I think that overall, even though this time has been difficult for some people and it's been a very strange period of politics no question about that it it will all sort itself out and the united states which has been a cherished democracy since 1778 1787 if we want to be exact obviously they won the war in 1776 but 1787 is when the constitution was put forward for all the bumps in the road the problems that occur recognizing that democracy is not perfect either, the US has been able to soldier on. I see no reason why they can't do so here, irrespective if Donald Trump leaves office on January twentieth, Donald Trump sits for four more years, or Donald Trump runs a media network. No matter how it operates, everybody will get past it. And whether the next president ultimately turns out to be Joe Biden, which the odds are certainly in favor of, or Donald Trump if some sort of weird twist of fate happens Everybody will move forward. And no, this is not the end of democracy. It's not the end of the United States. It's not the end of the uh, institutions of government that have been so powerful there. The country will move forward as it always. Michael
0: Tobe has been with us, Troy Media, syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. If you read uh, Tom Wilson's beautiful scars, you uh, learned about his family and bunny and George and, and and how he grew up in the hammer and so on and so forth, but also that uh, kind of lost at times, a lost soul, not really feeling grounded where he was. And then later in life, later in life finding out his parents weren't really his parents and his connections to the indigenous community Tom Wilson is with us now Tom thanks for the time hope you're doing well I'm doing great
4: Scott boy thanks for playing that song
0: tell us about that because that's a very cool version and and tell us who's with you
4: well um, you know it's funny you know you gotta you gotta follow uh you gotta you gotta follow the spirit that's leading you and we you know I, I'm I'm not going to try and sound like a a heavily religious guy, but man, the spirit is out there for us to follow. And what happened was um, uh, I was asked to do an award show called the uh, Inspire Awards, IND. It's an Indigenous uh, uh, Awards uh, presentation at the National Arts Center in Ottawa. I was asked to do it with my friend Isque, who I love, who is a fellow Hamiltonian. And we did it and uh, did one song on the show and didn't think anything of it. And then all of a sudden, phones started to ring saying, we want to sign your band to a record deal. And all I could think of was, what band? <laughs> we just played <laughs> one song. But um, we got together. We recorded out at Chukasa, out on the Six Nations. And uh, I think we've come up with some, some pretty interesting material. i got to say, that song has sounded very sexy, Scott.
0: Boy, is it ever! It just adds a different element to it as a duet, and you—you guys, you two have done various versions of this where she's the lead, you're the lead. It's amazing how it has all turned out.
4: Yeah, and we're just getting going, but you know, yeah, yeah, did I mean, come on, man. I'm, 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 I'm feeling sexy just singing it, man.
0: I know, I know. It sends chills up your spine. I hear you, Tom. <laughs> tom what was it like to find out that your parents weren't really your parents i remember having a friend that discovered this what was that experience like for you
4: well it was uh, very emotional um of course i uh, bunny wilson is uh, was the greatest person i think i'll ever meet george wilson gave me everything he could but um i think that you can talk to a lot of adopted uh kids uh, or uh kids that don't know their their true identity and i don't mean like superheroes but we don't know our true identity and we just feel like there's something missing we feel that uh the dots just aren't connecting uh the bloodstreams aren't running uh in the same direction and uh it wasn't until uh uh, i found out that uh i started to feel absolutely free and i started to feel whole as as a as a human being i joke that i grew up thinking i was a big puffy sweaty irish guy i'm actually a a mohawk man and now that i'm 61 i feel like because of the life i've led maybe i'm just reaching my manhood scott but uh i'm i'm reaching my man my manhood as a mohawk and i just can i mention that i was driving home from the dog park to come home and do the interview and uh i got a phone call my mother is so thrilled That I'm on the Scott Thompson show, so look (laughs) out, buddy.
1: Oh my!
4: All right,
0: thank you. Uh, So, so you know, finding out your parents aren't your parents—that's one thing. But again, you talked about the spirituality of this, realizing you're you're a member of the indigenous community. What was that like?
4: Uh, Well, first of all, um, unlike uh, most uh, most uh, unlike high school and. most clubs and uh, things. It wasn't like that. It was like I found out that I was uh, indigenous. I ended up in uh, circles like the Indigenous Music Awards and uh, uh, various celebrations, uh, powwows, and uh, the. They, I introduced myself. I said hi. I just, I just found out that I'm uh, a Mohawk, and um, the feeling was, oh, hey, great. Now you're one of us. Come on in. There was no. Uh, There's no questions. You know, you get the questions in. In uh, the colonial world, of you know, well, you know, I get the, I got the questions a lot, like, well, well, how Indian are you, right? <laughs> Which, um, you know, what, I don't, I don't even take that as a rude thing. I just think that that is the way that uh, the education system has, has taught yeah. the colonial world how to think about the indigenous world, and it's wrong. Let's just start with that, Scott. It's just wrong the teachings uh, that we've learned in school. Uh, are not how it was. Uh, history is a one-sided story. And uh, I don't think that we're going to be able to change the generations that grew up with that education, but what we have to look forward to is uh, coloring the world uh, with our culture and integrating and speaking to one another um, and telling each other stories and making this a better country. We already live in the greatest country on the planet, Scott. The... Um, Truth and reconciliation is a giant scar on this country. Sir John A. MacDonald was a murderer, of course, and, uh, and we, have to, we have to start not yelling at each other anymore. We have to start talking to each other. We have to start listening. If we start listening instead of talking over one another and dismissing each other's words, if we actually turned off CNN and Fox News and deleted our Twitter app for a minute, gave ourselves a chance to replenish and breathe We could feel the love that we have in our heart, and we know what we could offer the world. So these are steps that we have to take, not just in the Indigenous world, but also in the colonial world.
0: How did you find out, exactly?
4: I was going out and speaking to her, and uh, they gave me a handler. I go out and uh, lecture at the universities and colleges and conferences and things, and I was flying out to Regina to do... um, uh, one of these, one of these, Oh, sorry, Scott, things are blowing up here. On Hold on now, Scott. <laughs> and um, uh, what happened was uh, the the person that was kind of the handler, the person running the show said, uh, you know, uh, I'm really excited to meet you. I'm a fan and you don't know this, but your family and my family used to be friends. And I explained to her, I said, well, Bunny and George were, were really quite, uh, they were getting elderly by the time I came along. George Wilson, great man who raised me, was blinded in the Second World War. Um, he had a massive head injury. He was a tail gunner in a Lancaster bomber spot. Mm. And for those listeners that don't know what that means, a tail gunner position in the Second World War was known as a suicide feat. The young men, boys that sat in that seat, most of them didn't come home. George Wilson did come home with a massive head injury and totally blind. So my household on East 36th Street was pretty shut down. Nobody in Hamilton uh, ever got in. And Bunny Wilson, I didn't think, had any friends in Hamilton. And this woman said, no, 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 my, my, mother's, uh, my grandmother's name is Mary Brennan. She was friends with Bunny, and I remembered her grandmother. My heart broke open, Scott, because I didn't think Bunny Wilson had any friends. And sure enough, she had this woman, and then she said, yes, in fact, my grandmother was so close with Bunny Wilson, she was there the day you were adopted. Oh. And I said, What, and that started this eight year journey that i'm on, and it's a journey that uh uh I am starting to feel my uh my mohawk blood more and more every day um I found out that uh, not only am I a mohawk but I grew up an only child. I have six brothers and sisters back home in Gnawagan uh my uh, I'm, oh. i i came my mother janie and i are are now uh having a relationship as father, uh, as as mother and son, after 53 years of being cousins or being told that we were cousins. So um, that really opens things up. So I come from, Scott, seven generations of iron workers. I come from men that built, you know, New York City. In fact, my sister's great-grandfather is one of those guys, the fourth guy in, sitting in that famous photograph, Building Rockefeller Center, you know those guys eating their lunch—that iconic photo. Most of those guys are from Ganawage, the reserve that uh, my family is from in Quebec, outside Montreal. And everybody in Ganawage had somebody in that photo, either a great uncle or a neighbor or a grandfather. Uh, So the connection to my culture is not going to come the same way as it did for my mother or my brothers and sisters. I believe that through my art, my music, and the next book that I'm writing for Random House Blood Memory, those things will bring the Indigenous world back into the light, uh, not just by me, but by other Indigenous artists, and it'll be a part of leading the way forward to a more loving community and a better Canada. But I always believe that artists are much smarter than politicians, mm-hmm. and uh, much wiser than churches, and much more interesting than corporations. So uh, my job is to, to work as an artist. And I'm not saying, Scott, that my art is is the, is the beginning of the movement or the ending of a movement. I'm just saying that I'm part of something that is happening in the Indigenous world, and Indigenous art and music and literature is being recognized all over the world more and more. It's art that I think will lead us.
0: Well said. What has it been like for your birth mother, Janie, to experience this with you once you found out?
4: Well, we're both so similar, you know. Um, I know what I look like. You know what I look like, Scott, but I'm very sensitive. And so is she. And I start to figure out so much of myself I see in her, you know, so much of me she sees in her uh the relationship is is fantastic uh we're nurturing each other through the uh, back end of our life how's that uh, that's this is a rebirth it. this a is a rebirth, rebirth for you in so many ways so, and it awakens so many other things scott you know besides um this book this next book that i'm writing besides the uh, music that i'm writing for a different project i wrote a play i'm writing a, a tv show right now um uh, I, I'm kind of a busy guy, but uh, also things, uh, the injustices in the uh, towards the Indigenous communities from coast to coast are, are something that makes my blood boil and, and makes me feel rage. And uh, I'm finding ways to be able to deal with that and help in those situations. I mean... We are experiencing just outside of Hamilton in Caledonia an example of um, colonial greed, and it's something that uh, that should be recognized as that. And rights, uh, wrongs need to be made right, and it'll be a slow process. But uh, you know, I, I stand, I stand with those uh, those landkeepers out there on uh, fourteen ninety two land back lane. They're righteous people. They're families. You know, they are people that care not about the construction of crappy houses. They think seven generations down the line. And that's the Indigenous way, is that we take care of the land the best we can. We take care of this planet. We take care of all of our communities as best we can. Not for ourselves, but for our children, our grandchildren, our great-great-great-grandchildren. We think seven generations down the line. It's a way of thinking that I'm just adapting.
0: Uh, we're going to talk to uh, we're going to talk to somebody about the the national unity fire that's taking place in regard to 1492 Lamback Lane. Also, want to talk. Uh, I also want to mention too a guest we had on yesterday, uh, Kim Smiley Wiley. Uh, a uh, a meeting of unity, 3 p.m. Argyle Street at the Barricade on Saturday, and uh, that's both sides getting together and just saying, hey, uh, let's bring the government together and and the uh, six nations and get this solved finally. I just uh, we've only got a little bit of time left because I want to get Jennifer on but um, talk about your art for a minute and you can definitely see and, and maybe I'm wrong I mean I'm not an artist I you know I, I just know what I like but I, I can certainly see the indigenous influence there it, it, did it come out in your art before you even knew it's, this it's
4: crazy I've been painting since 1997 yeah the way I'm painting now is the way I started painting simple images colors and stories I write I write my book I write my books into my paintings. But it all makes sense now. Yeah, but you know what? Like, uh, say, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, before I knew I was a Mohawk, my daughter said to me, she said, Dad, you're going to have to stop painting like this. This is cultural appropriation. And I said, (laughs) I'm a knucklehead from Hamilton, Scott. I said, I don't even know what that means. What do you mean, cultural appropriation? She She said, it's taking someone else's culture and using it for your own for your own, further your own life and your own career. I said, I don't know. This is just what's coming out of me, Madeline. And sure enough, you know, years later, I find out that I am a Mohawk, and I stand and look at these paintings, and I realize that it's been coming out of me this entire time. And I'm excited about it. And uh, Your kids must uh, just
0: be amazed watching this happen.
4: I think so. Um, uh, I'm amazed. You know, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. I'm happy with my community. I know you're bringing Jan on, who lives across the street. You know, and uh, just in case, you know, uh, the impact of of what goes on uh, against Indigenous communities is felt uh, all over Canada. An example is in my neighborhood, people are driving around, you know, with very nice cars with "Land Back" written on the side of them. You know, people do feel things, and we do feel the thing that that. You know, it's not, it's not the Six Nations. It's not Caledonia. It's the words that are spoken that can drive people down. Hate, fear, and greed are an ugly combination. And they're the ingredients that are pushed forward by local politicians in Caledonia and Haldeman County to influence people. And I think it's an ugly scene, man. In fact, when I was talking to friends in Nashville about this, they said, Wow, this sounds like the Jim Crow South. Hmm. That's hmm. that's not a very good comparison for Caledonia and Haldeman County to be compared to the Jim Crow South. It's something that is just someone's opinion. But it's someone's opinion from thousands of miles away in the South, man. And that's a scary thought. So let's fix that. What about that?
0: Tom Wilson has been with us. Uh Tom com to find out everything that he has been up to, whether it's the music, his art or uh, his ongoing writing, which I can't wait to, uh, to, uh, read the follow up to Beautiful Scars. Tom, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. You're always welcome here. Uh, love your art. Love what you're doing. I love the new video for, uh, Blue Moon Drive and, and how you've incorporated your art into that and the blinking eye. That is, I love it. It's fabulous. So thank good you, luck. Scott. Be well. Your story sends shivers up my spine and I'm sure it, it has lots others as well. So thank you so much for taking the time and be well.
4: God bless you, Scott. Thank you.
0: A National Unity Fire will be taking place this weekend to show support for those at 1492 Land Back Lane. To join us now, Jennifer Homepoth is with us, community organizer and supporter of 1492 Land Back Lane, and is with us now. Jennifer, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
1: Hi, Scott. I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, let's get all the details of this out in the open. This is a virtual event. Tell us about this.
1: So this is really an exciting event. Yeah. Um, It's going to be on Sunday, uh, November 22nd, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you're here in Ontario, you can uh, tune in either via Facebook Live, which is going to be streamed from Tom Wilson's Facebook page, or you can participate in the Unity Fire. So everyone who wants to participate is invited to um, to light a fire, whether that's a campfire, whether that's in your home, whether that's a candle. And the idea behind this is really to... To gather people together, you've just heard some some really impactful stories from Tom's words, and I think oftentimes, you know, as as someone who is non-indigenous, who's um, a second generation immigrant to this country, I think that it's often stories and hearing other people's realities that bring us together, that allow us to really empathize. So so everyone's invited to um to light a fire, and to show a message of. and the idea is to bring people together around 1492 Land Back Lane and what that means to the people of Six Nations, what that means to Haudenosaunee people.
0: Do you get the feeling that attitudes are changing and that uh, people want resolution? They want these issues to be resolved. They want the dialogue to happen. Uh, Do you get that feeling?
1: You know, that's a really good question to ask. Um, I was speaking to... I think it's really of two minds. A lot of people that I'm seeing who, you know, live even in the neighborhood, they're they're really in support. And these are people who don't, you know, don't share an indigenous heritage, um, and they're they're saying, you know what, I can see that this is a story that has been happening since you know the very the very short history that has been Confederation. This is this is something that we need to deal with. And I, I heard from a neighbor, um, and she said, well. I I think we have to deal with the Canada that we have now. We got to talking a little bit, and, you know, we kind of came to this place where I said, well, this is the Canada that we have now. The Canada that we have now is this. And people like Tom and people from Wet'suwet'en all the way to the Mi'kmaq and the East Coast, this is our Canada. So this is what we're trying to deal with. And, um, you know, I find it difficult because I find that, as much as there's movement, there's also division, there's new division and, and new kinds of intolerance. And, and I think, you know, we're going to have to ride, like, the fear and the uncertainty, even as we try and work towards what does it mean to resolve issues. Because Do you, think Canadians, resolve, under, yeah. do
0: you think Canadians understand why this has taken long, why this hasn't happened up until now? Well, not, not that it has, but we're moving towards it, I guess. Do, do, do you think they understand that?
1: You know, I think, um, I think that we are now in a place where we're getting information from all sorts of places and um, was having a conversation with my father, who's about Tom's age, who is living in the neighborhood where Tom grew up, you know, in the East Mountain. And he said, you know, people in my age, we are watching and we are listening to the news media. We're hearing things, but people who are younger, like you guys choose what you listen to and And I really think that there's been, you know, there's more voices um, to be heard from. And and I think that people are hoping to resolve things, but it's a really hard thing to unlearn things that you've learned, just as as Tom was talking about. Hmm. Yeah.
0: All right, the uh, Coast to Coast Unity Fire in support of Land Defenders, 1492 Land Back Lane, Sunday, November 22nd, uh, 4 o'clock until 5.30, Coast to Coast Unity Fire, 1492 Land Back Lane, and you can access this through Tom Wilson's website. Thank you so much for the time, Jennifer. Good luck with all of this. Be well. Thank you.